Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to the Change Your POV Podcast. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes of veteran mental health. I'm your host, Dwayne France. Let's get ready to make sure that your headspace and timing set correctly. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Headspace and Timing. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for checking us out. As many of you who serve know, the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal, is one of the greatest weapons in the military's arsenal. The weapon's headspace and timing isn't set right, however, it's just a huge chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing is not set correctly either. That's my mission here, to raise awareness about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week we'll talk about different aspects of veteran mental health and interview mental health professionals that are working with veterans, service members, and their families around the country. So thanks everybody for joining us again today for a Headspace and Timing podcast. I've got a great guest here today, uh, someone that uh, is intimately familiar with veteran mental health. Um, The guest today is going to be Anthony Hassan, and and Anthony uh, is uh, many different things, and we'll get into a lot of it in a bit, but uh, Anthony, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Dwayne. Thanks for having me, and thank you for all that you do every day, uh, getting the word out to support veterans and military families in, in our communities. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it, it's one of the shared things. I know that you and I um, do share that uh, passion. We think that there's a lot that community mental health providers can do to support uh, the VA and, and some of the things that are going on. We get into that in a minute, but uh, I'd like for you to kind of introduce yourself um, a little bit of who you are, who you were, and and uh, what you're doing now. Super. Um, well, I am a retired military mental health officer. I retired in 2009. But going back to where it all began, and uh, I joined the Army in 1980 as a young person um, from the city of Chicago. Uh, I joined the Army as an enlisted radio operator. I served with artillery units for seven and a half years, and I served with the light infantry for four years in Alaska. While I was in for 11 and a half years, I was able to get my bachelor's degree in social work. And some may wonder why social work, and to this day sometimes I wonder, but I think there was a calling for me. And when I say that is I never intended to be a social worker. Uh, I always wanted to be a PE teacher and mentor young adolescents and and be an example. Uh, But as I was trying to achieve a bachelor's degree in the army it's impossible to do a daytime internship so education was was taken away the opportunity was taken away and I had a 
circumstance that just dropped in my lap and said, why don't you get a bachelor's degree in social work? And then I read, met, it, met an Army social worker. had no idea Army had social workers. And I met him, and he says to me, wow, if you get a master's degree in social work, Anthony, you can become an officer. I said, it's that easy? He says, yes. If you get a master's degree in social work, which would only take you one year because you have a BSW, uh, you can then apply and become a commissioned officer, a captain, overnight. And I said, holy cow. So you mean I can get out, get my master's in social work, and come back in? And he said, absolutely. And so that's exactly what I did. I separated from the Army after 11 and a half years. I went out and got my master's degree in one year. I practiced for a couple years. I became licensed as a licensed clinical social worker. I applied to the Army and to the Air Force. And the Air Force application came through quicker, and I was a captain in the United States Air Force. And then I served another 14 years, totaling 25 years of service. Uh, those last 14 years in the Air Force as a uh, mental health officer and military social worker were extremely gratifying. I think my enlisted time really helped me uh, understand and relate, uh, and it was the most gratifying experience of my life. Uh, not to mention uh, my deployment to Saudi Arabia after the Kobar Towers, uh, going to East Africa to help with capacity building, and then of course deploying to Operation Iraqi Freedom in 2004. And interestingly enough, I was uh, embedded with the transport Army transportation units and Army aviation units. So here I had a chance to again uh, work with uh, the Army. Uh, and then I retired in 2009. I went to the University of Southern California to help grow a military social work program and a military research center. And fast forward six years later, here I am now, the CEO of the Cohen Veterans Network, which is a growing network of mental health clinics across the country designed to provide free or low-cost mental health care to veterans and military families to include guard and reservists uh, with the generous contributions of Mr. Stephen A. Cohen. Well, that's a uh, that's that's definitely a lot of travel. It uh, amazes me sometimes how we can sum up uh, almost a lifetime's worth of work in about five minutes, right? <laughs> yes. But the uh, it's it's very interesting the the transition you had between enlisted to officer. I imagine there was uh, there was probably some uh, some fine print that uh, your your army friend didn't tell you about. Uh, but then, uh, but. Why mental health? I mean, it's uh, a lot of different uh, um, soldiers or airmen, you know, a lot of different people have have that opportunity. Um, Why at that point, um, when you got your master's, did this appear to be something that interested you? Well, you know, I always wanted to come back in. It it wasn't as if I wanted to leave the military. I never had any intentions of of leaving. I always knew I was going to be a career person. But to be able to come back in uh, and to be able to help as a military officer, having the experiences from the enlisted side, having the experiences from the Army, uh, really uh, made sense to me. Uh, I never knew that uh, I had a leaning towards uh, mental health. It just happened. And it happened one day I was taking a tour of a adolescent psychiatric unit, and I said, geez, you know, I, I really could help here. And I think... I can do a good job. Um, but, you know, that's kind of what kept me in the field was this idea that, wow, I can help men and women that I've served with. 
I can be a force multiplier, if you would, um, for the military mental health system. So uh, it, it just happened, uh, but I think my experiences and background uh, really were well suited uh, for, for this profession because, you know, men and women who wear the uniform tend to want someone who is like them or has lived that experience like them, but they also look for someone who's pretty straightforward uh, and simple speaking, uh, if you would. And so my approach to therapy is, is, is somewhat directive. Uh, it's collaborative, but it's also um, very uh, problem-solving oriented, which is, I think, what our men and women like at times, is to be able to see the problem, figure out how to get there, uh, so they can have a solution at the other end, uh, and that fits with my personality. So, you know, I, it was just a nice fit for me to do military mental health. Well, that's great. You know, I, I do agree that uh, a lot of the veterans that I work with and some of my colleagues work with, they they really it, it's the bottom line up front. You know, let's cut through the BS and and let's uh, address what we need to address. Uh, and so, I definitely see how the benefit of of the enlisted side, especially being in as uh, eleven years as you were. Uh, would would uh, would help with that. It did. Uh, there's no doubt, uh, especially when the enlisted folks would come in my office, which are about 85% of my patients, if not more, would come in and see that, <clears throat> excuse me, on my walls that I'd have my Army stuff, and uh, there was a connection. Uh, there was a connection because I think they, they really want to know that the person on the other side understands them. And, uh, it really, really made a difference, and I think it makes a difference in what I do today, uh, what I've done uh, in the past uh, in this work, is that I understand that perspective, I understand uh, what they're looking for, I understand what it means to reduce barriers to care, I understand what their thinking is behind mental health, um, and my hope is that I can somehow change it. I can change it one person at a time, one company at a time, uh, one community at a time, but as you said in the very beginning, you know, trying to get men and women in the door is so, so very difficult. And, and I hope that as I build this Cohen Veterans Network that we're able to demonstrate to the veteran and military family member that we really do understand you at this facility in your hometown and that it, it's going to help you to come and get help uh, rather than hurt you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I agree with you that uh, I find that uh, military service, my deployments, much like your deployments um, and, and combat experience, provide some legitimacy and, and, and can really make a, a shortcut through a lot of the resistance. Um, I personally don't believe, though, that uh, a, a therapist or, or a psychologist needs to have been a veteran, though. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, absolutely. I agree with you that a therapist does not have to have served or deployed or both. I mean, that's the whole purpose of the University of Southern California's military social work program. It is to train civilians who are interested in serving veterans and military families in mental health in a community-based mental health capacity. I think we can do a very fine job of, of training them on military culture, training them on the best evidence-based practices giving them hands-on experiences in clinics where we serve veterans like the VA and other community organizations. So, no, not at all. I think that in some sometimes, uh, you know, veterans would rather talk to a civilian who may give them a different perspective. But I always think that no matter what it is, who you're serving, if you're serving the gay and lesbian population or you're serving the Latino population, you need to have a cultural competency around that particular group 
in order to relate. And, and I strongly believe that. And, and we all know that uh, we can learn and, and we can become more familiar with other groups, other diversity groups, um, so that we can provide uh, targeted, competent uh, care. Uh, so no, you, you don't have to have served. But I can tell you that when you know we have people at the front desk, when you have outreach workers and case managers who are veterans, um, that presence does create a comfort. Um, but not all therapists need to have served. And by the way, we would never fill the ranks of the community right, if yeah. we had to rely on, on guys like me and you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, but I, I think that uh, pairing up, um, you know, as, as you have um, in, in your clinics, um, individuals with military experience, individuals with the not, uh, without, that, that you can have that good mix. Uh, I once heard somebody kind of um, explain it as uh, clinicians like you and I um, we're natives to the culture, you know, it's it's a difference of, you know, I could go learn German and, and all about the German culture, but I'm not a native German. Um, there's still that gap, whereas you and I grew up or, or lived that uh, experience um, and, and are sort of native to the culture. Um, and there's, uh, in, in pairing those two kind of things together can really help. Uh, no doubt. Um, absolutely. And uh, again, we're hard to find. So we've got to train a workforce um, that can fill that gap and serve those that have served in their families. And and to do that, uh, we want to make sure that they're the best trained uh, because we only get one chance, Dwayne. You know that. Um, it takes a lot for our veteran to walk in the mental health door. And when they do, we need to be ready. And we need to be able to engage them in a way that's acceptable, uh, that's respectful, um, because they may not come back. That's one of our challenges is how do you create a sustaining engagement with a veteran who's reluctant to get help and tends to wait till it's a crisis. And then if you don't respond in a way that they feel comfortable, there's a good chance they won't come back. And so we have to do everything we can. And sometimes that's still not enough. But we need to demonstrate uh, that we understand, uh, that we're respectful, and that we're available uh, to them because... Again, we only get one chance sometimes. Yeah, I've noticed that with uh, with veterans, they don't really need much of a reason to avoid mental health treatment, and so any reason can be a good reason, and, and that's why uh, reducing the barriers is important. Absolutely, you know, what we're trying to do with the Cohen Veterans Network is that if you're a veteran and you call our clinic and asking for an appointment, or or a family member calls and, and talks about, you know, they have someone who needs help. We want to be able to tell them, you know, when they say, well, I, I, don't, I can't get there, I don't have a car. Well, we'll pick you up and we'll bring you back. Um, I can't afford it. Well, it's for free. Uh, I have insurance, but I can't pay the co-payment. We can work on that. Um, traffic is too bad. I can't cut across town. Well, we can do video conferencing. We can do a, a telehealth situation for you. I don't have daycare. Well, we can provide a daycare provider in our family waiting room. When you come, you'll have someone there to watch your children. So we have tried in every possible way with Mr. Cohen's generosity to ensure uh, that there is no reason why someone who is asking for help can't get help. So let's talk about the uh, Cohen Veteran Network uh, a little bit more in depth. Um, I know that uh, you've got a number of clinics. Uh, I think you just celebrated your one-year anniversary with some of your initial clinics and you're opening up some more. Uh, so what can you tell me about the Cohen Veterans Network uh, kind of locations and things like that? 
thank you, Dwayne. Uh, I know I mentioned it a couple of times already in the, in the podcast here, and I don't mean to promote us just to promote us for promoting sake. It's just it's part of how I've been thinking about establishing this network of clinics and what I have learned and have taken from my experiences that can help inform the network's development and services. So right now the Cohen Veterans Network opened with five clinics, clinics in uh, New York, Philadelphia, Dallas, San Antonio, and Los Angeles, and we have seven more opening this summer, over, well, over the next uh, four months. So we have a clinic opening in Fayetteville, North Carolina in June. In July, uh, we have a clinic opening in El Paso, Texas. We have a clinic opening in August in D.C., uh, in September in, in Denver, and October, Fort Hood in Colleen, Texas. And then we're going to round out 2017 with a clinic at Clarksville at Fort Campbell and a, and a clinic in Orlando. So those are the next seven. So we'll have 12 clinics by the end of this year. And then with the hope uh, of having uh, another, uh, let's see, 12, 13 more clinics uh, between now and 2019. So we're looking at seven next year and then six the following year um, with a total of 25 clinics in high-need communities across the country where we can serve or fill the gap or be part of, and I say part of, the solution for the communities where we go. We are not the solution, but we are definitely and can be part of the solution. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I, it, it does sound like, uh, you know, a top 10 list of, uh, of military concentration, um, you know, Fort Hood, Fort Campbell, Fort Bragg, um, you know, but, uh, it, but of course, uh, you know, comes to mind San Diego or Norfolk or, um, you know, or, or, or a lot of, and I guess Orlando is a, a large um, multi-service um, uh, place as well. Uh, but but yeah, there's a huge need a lot of different places. And absolutely, you know, and I didn't list where we're going next, um, but the list is uh, much greater than just 13. We can go to, we can go almost anywhere these days and, and do good and do good maybe 100 patients a year, maybe 1,000 patients a year, but we, we feel that there's a gap in care uh, and we want to be there for it. So surely if I look at the West Coast, we need to be in San Diego, we need to be in Northern California, Portland, Seattle. Uh, uh, we can go down to Phoenix and, and do great work there. We, uh, going across to Norfolk, going down to Miami, Jacksonville, Montgomery, Alabama, by the way, uh, has the greatest mental health uh, access uh, to care issue. You wouldn't necessarily think of Montgomery, Alabama, but we, we want to also reach out into the rural areas of Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming with telehealth out of our Denver clinic. So there's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of places to go. Um, and, and we're here uh, with Mr. Cohen's support to be able to help fill the gap and to be part of someone, someone's community solution. Uh, it's exciting uh, to be able to build a network uh, that's informed by veterans, that's informed by DOD and the VA. I have some, some strong colleagues who have participated in the development of, of the model. It's like a franchise. You know, I go to a community of high need, I find a real good community partner, and I fund that partner to deliver our model. Uh, and our model seems to be doing very, very well. It's, it's responsive, it's, it's informative, uh, and it's meeting the needs of, of veterans and military families. We've seen about 3,500 patients to date in the first year. And of those 3,500, 60% are, are veterans and 40% are family members, which I'm excited about. 
Of the veterans, we have 24% are women, and we think that's a real cool thing to see so many women. That's twice as many that actually serve on active duty. Right. We're serving 12% of those other than honorably discharged veterans who would not maybe have had a choice or an option. Um, and you know, it's just it's just going very very well, as you would imagine. In any outpatient clinic, what you would see is what we're seeing. So 20% of our patients have PTSD and other mental health conditions. But the majority of our men and women who present to the clinic have depression, anxiety, and adjustment challenges, you know, transition challenges, identity challenges, so grief and loss. So it's, it's the whole thing. And uh, I know we spend a lot of attention and time focused on PTSD because it is a, a very challenging diagnosis and, and one that we have to treat with evidence-based approaches, like all things, but it's the one that became our signature injury for the war. But I can tell you that men and women from all walks of service and experiences are challenged as well when they transition. And so we have to be mindful that there are men and women who present with life challenges as well. So our clinic cannot just cater to uh, PTSD uh, diagnosis, but it has to be uh, comprehensive enough. The clinic services have to be comprehensive enough to meet all of the veterans and the military family members' needs when they present. Uh, and so we believe that our outpatient program is, is comprehensive enough to meet the majority of the challenges that men and women uh, bring to our clinics on a daily basis. Yeah, I think that's really important, Anthony. It's uh, I was actually talking to a veteran, maybe it was like a month or so ago, and he, he said, uh, not a client, but a, a colleague of mine, and he said, you know what, I really don't have the PTSD thing. You know, he's like, I, I've looked at it. I've, he's like, that doesn't seem to be me. But when I was talking about some of the other stuff, you know, things you're talking about, purpose and meaning, but when we got to moral injury and I was explaining that to him, it was like a light bulb went off. And he was like, that's my issue. That's what I, you know, and he was like, I'm not worried about, you know, I don't have TB. I don't have PTSD. I don't have a substance use issue. But what is this other thing that you're talking about, moral injury? And so I think it's important to look beyond, like like you said, just PTSD and TBI. Well said. Absolutely. You know, I got goosebumps when you said that because that's what we're hearing, too. Uh, we're also hearing, look, man, I've been deployed, you know, five years out of the last 10 and uh, my marriage is falling apart or my relationship with my children uh, is not as good as I'd like it to be and I, I want to do better and I want to be better and I want to get back to better um, you know or you know I don't understand where I fit in anymore and, and I need some help talking to somebody and so sometimes it's almost like someone needs to have a coaching episode or, or, or just a moment where they can uh, share some of their their concerns with somebody else and and that's what I'd like, you know, folks who are listening, who are in the service or who are out of the service to know that, you know, talking to a mental health provider isn't taboo. It's, it's, it's a place where you can actually, you know, let some things out and get some uh, reflection. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's it, it, here's how I think of it. And I spent my whole career trying to convince service members that it's okay to get help. But what happens is, it's not that you have a mental health condition. What you have are behaviors that are causing you problems. And if you don't address the behaviors that are causing you problems, they're going to cause you real problems, like a DUI will ruin your career uh, or your future career. You know, those are domestic violence situations. Uh, you know, coming to work late, coming to work with alcohol on your breath. These were the things that were red flags that ended up bringing you to the clinic. Um, but imagine if you would have worked on some of those challenges before the incident. Uh, 
we could have prevented the incident. And so many times people think of mental health as a place that ends your career, and I would argue that it's not mental health, it's your behavior that ended your career or your future opportunities because you had unattended to problems that you coped with in a dysfunctional way. Yeah, I mean, I, I think absolutely that's something that uh, it can build up sort of death of a thousand cuts. And then we as um, veterans and service members also have unique experiences on top of that. Um, to circle back, you had mentioned that uh, you were part of the response to Cobar Towers. And, and, and really, if we could touch on that for a minute, because that was a, 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 that was a surprise. That was a, um, uh, as far as I understand, supposed to be a, a fairly safe um, situation. Uh, and I've actually spoken to veterans, Air Force veterans, who responded um, a day or two after Cobar Towers. Um, and it was horrific for them. Um, and so on top of all of the small stuff, there's those big events that happen. Yeah, so when I deployed to Saudi Arabia, uh, it was after the Kobar Towers. So basically they moved everybody from Kobar Towers into the middle of the desert. And that's where I sat as the mental health officer for the 5,000 men and women who were at Kobar Towers. So I didn't actually respond to the crisis. I was actually the mental health officer for the 5,000 that were now placed into a desert environment to ensure force protection uh, at the time. So my actual work was working with a compound of 5,000 men and women deployed in, a, in an austere environment. That was not a reaction or a response to the, the terrible incident. But I can tell you that in our experience as military mental health officers, we do a lot of critical incident responses. We are uh, going to support our men and women who've lost loved ones in, in, in battle, who've lost them in, in blasts, who've lost them in terrorist acts, who have who've been lost in airplane mishaps. Um, so this is very common to us uh, who wear the uniform in the military mental health to be responsive to mass casualty uh, scenarios. And, you know, and for those of us in the field, that affects us too. It right. changes how we view the world. We have nightmares and memories of, of hearing over and over again the trauma of others. And so for those mental health people who are listening, professionals who are listening right now, remember self-care is important, particularly when you're dealing with trauma after trauma after trauma. Yeah, I mean, I, I do believe that that's a, a very important point, too. I've found that there are times where, um, you know, as, as I'm speaking uh, with Veterans One, um, I'm located in the area outside of the post that I deployed with. And so um, in, in many cases, um, I know specifically the areas, um, because I served in the areas either before or after some of the, the veterans I'm talking to, um, and it can get um, very uh, heavy, I guess, or impactful uh, if we don't care for ourselves. And I think that um, is another aspect of the, um, the cultural competence because if a provider's not familiar with what uh, the veteran happened or you know, what, what happened to the service member, um, they can be impacted too adversely, vicarious trauma or, or anything like that. And that can then damage the therapeutic relationship. Absolutely. And, you know, this is tough business. <laughs> You know, uh, being a mental health professional, being a clinician, serving a population uh, that has experience, trauma experiences, repeated trauma experiences can be pretty taxing on 
uh, on the clinician as well. Um, but you know, the, the, the profession uh, of mental health, as we all know, has a high burnout rate, and so uh, we all need to make sure we're taking care of ourselves, balancing our caseload, and ensuring that we're also supported along the way. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you had mentioned earlier, especially, and it was interesting that you said uh, Montgomery, Alabama. You're right, I hadn't considered uh, the challenges um, in, in some of the more, or I definitely, uh, in the Central West, I'm aware of the remote challenges here. Uh, what are some of the barriers either that you're hearing from staff at the clinics or that you experience? Um, what are some of the barriers to veteran mental health and wellness that exist? And what can communities or community providers do to help reduce them? Yeah, I think some of the ones that I highlighted earlier have to do with, you know, the clinic's not accessible, it's too far away, uh, I can't afford it, I don't have insurance, I'm between jobs, uh, I can't trust the therapist. Um, you know, so we're trying to do our best to, to address those, but what I think what we're trying to do and test to see if it matters is to deploy uh, outreach workers who are veterans. So we hire veterans to go out in the community and be a part of the community who come from the community to really instill trust in the clinic, uh, to be able to discuss the services offered, to be able to reduce the barriers to care when they're presented to them in an audience of, of many or in a one-on-one -on -one situation. Uh, so our efforts um, to reduce those type of barriers, one is the big one is trust. Is how do I, you know, reduce? Uh, how do I gain their trust? And we, we think that by having community-based outreach workers from the clinic who are veterans can do that. Um, we try really hard to work with the VA, uh, where they uh, have a need uh, that necessarily can't get met in time. So we want to be able to help them as well. So we see our number one and two referral sources, believe it or not, are the VA and word of mouth. And so we believe that uh, the word of mouth is because of our community outreach, it's because of the quality care that's being provided. Um, so it's really, really important to have a strong social media chain, uh, a strong media channel, uh, I should say. Uh, but to me, what's making a difference is we have trusted veterans who are going out and extending the support of the clinic uh, where it needs to be. And, and I think that's often an overlooked aspect of um, mental health support for veterans is that peer aspect. Uh, the VA has started to do it with their peer support specialists, um, and, uh, and they've done very well. I, I know several uh, who are here in uh, Colorado Springs that uh, they're able to connect with veterans, like you say, establish that bond of trust. Um, that, that peer support element is a significant aspect to breaking down some of those internal barriers, right? Absolutely, sure is, and I think when people walk in the front door after having an experience with another veteran and they walk into the front door of the clinic and the clinic is warm enough to them or the, the immediate interaction is one that feels good to them, uh, I think we, we've, we've been successful. Hopefully they'll stay engaged in treatment, which I mentioned earlier is one of the, the barriers to care is how do I keep and this is true with all of mental health patients, how do we keep them engaged for the duration of the treatment. So we know that prolonged exposure and cognitive behavior, uh, processing therapy takes about 12 sessions. But the truth is our average number of sessions for our veterans is only eight. So what's, what do we do there when the total uh, episode of care is now uh, cut short? 
Um, so how do I engage the veteran between sessions without being a pest, but to keep them engaged, to keep them motivated, to keep coming back until treatment is completed rather than prematurely terminating uh, and then you know, having to come right back in crisis you know, a month later, which is fine, but we would prefer that the veteran patient or family member stay engaged for the duration of the treatment. Um, and so one way that we're trying to do it is to continue to extend the peer-to-peer piece by having a 24-hour call center that's manned or womened by veterans uh, so that if there's a situation where someone needs to talk, uh, that they can do that. If there's a way for us proactively to reach out to our patients in between sessions, we'd like to do that. So I think, you know, one of the things that we need to do better of is keeping veterans engaged in treatment once they enroll. Um, and one last piece that we're considering doing, and actually it's in implementation now, is to develop a, a wearable uh, where some of our high-risk patients can have a wearable on their wrist that will help us track their sleep, their activity, their uh, heart rate, um, so that we can maybe detect early on if they're isolating, uh, if they're sleeping too much or not enough as a way to reach forward and say, hey, it looks like you're not doing so well. Would you like to come in and see us? So there are ways that we're thinking about engaging the veteran in between session because it's, it's unfortunate that they come in, they have one or two sessions, and then they discontinue treatment. We really believe that you know, they need to stay the course, uh, whatever that course is for them. It's five sessions, eight sessions, 12 sessions. Uh, so we can have the best possible outcome. So that's really interesting. I'm uh, is and and me, of course, not being an insider, uh, but knowing um, what what Cohen Veteran Network is and, and the work you're doing, I wasn't even aware of the uh, the staffed um, 24-hour hotline. Um, is that just for your local clinics? Um, is that only in certain local clinics? Or are you doing that nationally? Yeah, we're in the process of completing the contract, so we haven't started it yet, but we're very close to completing a contract with a national call center Great. that all of our veteran patients would have that number that they can call in between sessions. We're also going to see if we can get the veteran or family member to check mark on their intake sheet if we can call them between sessions so we're not being intrusive but they've already asked us to, that we would then have this call center call them to check in on them between sessions. Uh, we're also looking at maybe using it for the no-shows as a way of reaching back and saying, I know you missed your appointment today, uh, could we reschedule you for another one? So we're really trying to be available to them 24-7. Yeah, see, I mean, and, and I think that's great. This is an example of um, what community members or community providers uh, like ourselves can do, um, and not to compete with the VA, not to supplant the VA, um, but to come alongside and to really cover those gaps that exist because they're huge. Uh, absolutely. I mean, and again, uh, I have a great relationship with the VA at the central office in D.C., but we even have a better relationship at the local level with the local VA. This isn't a competition. We're really here to add value. We're really here to be part of that community solution. 
And so everything we do is really coming from the community, and that's why we partner with a community organization, uh, because it really has to be driven from the community, from grassroots. All partners in the community need to be engaged as a unit uh, to support those in the community who've, who've served. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, one thing that especially I, I, I don't like to ask because um, it's not a, uh, an enjoyable subject, but that I do ask of uh, mental health providers is uh, there are a few challenges um, that are significant to the veteran community than the epidemic of veteran suicide. Um, I, I know that you've seen it. I'm sure you know that I've seen it. I mean, it's just it's so uh, widespread. Uh, what are your thoughts on it and how can we as mental health providers make an impact? Wow, tough subject, right? Um, you know, as a therapist, eventually you're going to have the unfortunate call where one of your patients decided to take their life by suicide, and it's a reality of our business. It's a reality of, of what we're seeing now in the veterans community with reportedly 20 veterans dying by suicide a day. Tragic. Uh, but it's also an epidemic across America, uh, right. high rates of suicide. I think as organizations, uh, we need to do as much as we can. We need to learn from those unfortunate circumstances. We need to have good quality measures in place, good quality compliance, good risk management. We need to make sure we're asking the question. We need to make sure we're addressing the screener that asks if you're suicidal. We need to make sure clinicians are developing safety plans on a regular and routine basis, that the organization's culture has to be zero suicide. The organizational processes have to be wrapped around the idea that we're going to work towards zero suicide. We're going to do everything we can in our power, in our processes, to ensure that we do everything when someone comes in the door at high risk. And again, it goes to those engagement things that I talked about. It goes to this idea that hopefully we're a trusted place and they would reach to us before they made an attempt on their life. Or it's it's when we have that 24-hour access and someone picks up the phone and calls in between session when they're struggling and we get them in the next morning. Uh, or we get them to a, a, an emergency room. Uh, it's the high, it's the wearable, right, that says, uh-oh, this dashboard is telling me that Johnny's not doing well. Let me give him a call. So it's trying to be as proactive as possible. It's also we're looking at data, and all the data that comes into our clinics and our network can help us predict high-risk patients. And so we can engage early in, in managing risk. And uh, it's a tough, tough thing, you know. And, and as you know and I know, we can do everything in our power, but sometimes people make choices, unfortunately. Um, but we want to make sure that we're there in a preventative way. We want to be there to intervene early. We want to make sure we're intervening with the right resources and the right tools to help us assess risk. But in the unfortunate circumstance, we also want to be there after an incident. We want to be there to support the clinic, the family, the community. And this is tough business. And uh, frankly, your question is perfectly timed because I am looking right now to hire someone uh, to be my vice president of risk management and quality uh, compliance because it's that important to us. Right. I, I want to raise the level of care in our network of providers that they haven't experienced in their current organization. I want them to recognize that we need to do better and we can do better. Uh, so let's lift, let's raise the playing field here. Let's make it 
part of our everyday processes uh, rather than a one-off when someone says they're suicidal. You know, I, I like what you said about uh, prevention. Obviously, you know, the prevent with the little p, but prevent with the big p is to and to be able to work with a veteran until it, or before it gets to that crisis state, um, you know, so that the crisis never occurs. Um, and, and that goes back to what you were call, saying earlier about a veteran will drop off services and then come back when they're in crisis, but it would be much better for them to not have the crisis in the first place. Absolutely. I mean, the pain and suffering that the crisis brings, you know, if we can only get upstream on this stuff. And, you know, that's partly why we're focusing on, on post-9-11 veterans, right? We want to get upstream on this problem. We want it to be less of a chronic condition. We want it to be uh, where we get involved before you lose your family, before you lose your job. Um, and we're doing everything we can to help get upstream. It's not that we're ignoring the other era of veterans. Uh, we'll see them as they as they need to be seen. But we really have to put an effort, a strong effort, in helping those that have served in these recent wars so that they don't have a lifelong uh, experience of suffering, uh, a lifelong experience of isolation. Uh, and so we are working so, so hard on making sure we can get in front of it and trying to do as much in the community to create community awareness to make this place, the Cohen Clinic, a place or other clinics a place uh, where you can come and get help uh, and get the support you need when you need it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is uh, one of the things that we don't do well as mental health professionals is getting that word out um, of, of sharing um, you know, what we can do, what we have the ability to do with veterans. Um, a colleague of mine says uh, sometimes we're so confident in our own product that uh, why wouldn't someone come in and we just sit back and wait for someone to come in. Uh, but uh, that proactive approach that you're talking about with the Cohen clinics is uh, is pretty significant. Well, you know where that came from, Dwayne. That came from combat stress control teams. You know, that came from how I was deployed, how I thought of mental health. When I was in Saudi Arabia on that base with 5,000, I didn't sit in a tent somewhere. I was walking around. I was engaging. I was going to commander's calls. I was going to the gym. I was hanging around, you know, sitting around eating ice cream, right? Right. So, you know, that was, that's, or standing in the child line and passing a flyer forward, uh, read this and pass it forward, you know, uh, that's, that's where this is coming from. That's where this investment of two outreach workers and a case manager for every team is, or for every clinic is important in the way we think about it. I knew I was most effective and more trusted when I lived with them, worked with them, and always presented with them. So, you know, doing the outreach activities to the unit, doing the stress management blurb, right, talking about, you know, resources, that's the model we're trying to deploy out of the Cohen Clinic is that we have to be in the community, we have to be talking to veteran and veteran groups and National Guard and Reserve units and, and the VA and whomever else will listen to us um, because they have to know we're available and that they're welcome to come. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm definitely going to uh, put links in the show notes to uh, to the Cohen uh, Network website uh, and also definitely the, uh, the USC uh, program. Uh, there's a lot more uh, graduate programs that are offering certificates for um, LCSWs and LPCs and psychologists um, to be able to provide 
some uh, some military cultural competence. Um, but is uh, is there anything that I didn't ask that you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, just along those lines, Dwayne, the idea that the Cohen clinics, the network of clinics, really is something that's special because I want to take the graduate student from the LPC program or the LCS or the military social work program or a social work program, and I want them to know that we might have a slot for them to intern in our clinics. So you see, I'm trying to grow our own. If every clinic has three graduate students, that's 75 graduate students a year the Cohen Clinic is helping train, then we're generating a pipeline of clinicians that can work with veterans and military families, not only in a Cohen Clinic, but in the communities that they're from. And so I, I guess I just would like to just say that if you're a graduate student and you're interested in working with veterans and military families, the Cohen Clinic in your town, if there is one, is looking for graduate students to grow and cultivate and provide good supervision uh, so that you can eventually uh, help us help veterans and military families. So in closing, I would just say that there are graduate student opportunities uh, in the Cohen Clinic because there just aren't enough of us uh, to support the men and women who've worn the uniform in every community across the country. Yeah, actually, as a matter of fact, I had a, uh, a conversation with the veteran that uh, he was finishing up his tour in Germany. He was retiring, heading back to San Antonio. He reached out to me looking for resources, and I directed him to the clinic, uh, to the Cohen Clinic. And I said, hey, check this out. There's some, there's some opportunities. Uh, it really because veterans who become mental health professionals, uh, like yourself and myself, we want to work with veterans and we want to pay it forward. Um, so, yeah, it's great to know that. It's a beautiful thing, uh, you know, to be able to continue to serve as you and I are and others while we're out of uniform. So one of the big questions, of course, um, and, and this is the, the question I like to ask all my closing guests, is uh, you've got somebody listening to this. Maybe they, uh, they, they stumbled on this show and maybe they were listening to uh, uh, Jeff's, uh, uh, Jeff Adamek's um, Changing Hearts and Minds show, uh, and they're like, yeah, well, why? What's in it for me? Why do I need to work with a counselor or a therapist? What's, you know, what's the point? I can deal with this on my own. What would you say to that veteran who has that in their mind, Anthony? Well, you know, Dwayne, it's kind of what I said earlier in the show, and it's, you know, I don't know how many times I have to say it, right, in order for the men and women to hear me. And the problem is they only hear me when they are in crisis and they have to come to see me. I really wish that people can recognize when people tell you you're, you have a challenge, when people are concerned about you, take that seriously. Don't minimize it. Get help. And that doesn't have to be with a, a licensed provider. You can go to a, a chaplain. Uh, you can go to a coach. Sometimes it's going to a mentor. You need to talk with someone about this. Because what happens is that over time, the problem doesn't get better, whatever it is. You avoid it, you minimize it, you rationalize it, and what happens is your behavior eventually is going to get you into a clinic. It's going to get you into a clinic because you did something you regret, uh, or you become so incapacitated uh, that you can't function, and you end up in our office. I'd like to see you early. I'd like to see you when the problem is first presented to you as a problem. 
I want you to come see us when you're recognizing that you've got these ruminating negative thoughts that are keeping you from sleeping. Come early. That's what I would suggest. It's worth it. Because in the end, unattended to mental health problems turn into critical incidents and crises. So please, come and get help. Talk to someone. Take that first step. Yeah, that's. Uh, I think that's really along the lines of what I tell veterans is like, uh, look, better to to come in whenever your wife or your, your your parents might say that there's something going on. Even better when you realize yourself that something's going on, because it might get to the point where a cop or a judge is going to tell you you really need to do something about it. And I then the problem is so much worse. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I really appreciate taking the time, Anthony. I know that you're extremely busy and, uh, and your time is at a premium, so the amount of time that you've taken uh, with us and our listeners is, is great. Uh, if, uh, if somebody wants to reach out to you, find more information, um, how can they find you, your website, uh, social media, stuff like that? Yeah, you can find all of that at, at our website, CohenVeteransNetwork.org. Uh, you'll see where our clinics are, where we're going, uh, and there are a number of other things on there that you, you'd find interesting. Uh, so we look forward to you visiting with us, uh, and hopefully one day I'll be in a city near you. Uh, we're always looking to hire veterans and, and people who have mental health backgrounds, and hopefully, Dwayne, one day you and I will be able to work closer together as well. to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.